Welcome back, I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom, where I cut through the BS and lay out with the gaslight-fueled clowns pulled out of their hats this week and what is coming next. As the holidays come to a close, Americans woke up to a late Christmas present from Congress, $34 trillion in debt. The Department of Treasury broke the news, announcing that total public debt outstanding crossed the 34 line on actually December 29th. The milestone comes just 105 days since we broke $33 trillion way back in September. Rarely have so few been so proud to bankrupt the country so fast. Incidentally, that's an annualized pace of $3.5 trillion in additional debt, so that's far beyond the $2 trillion that they were expecting for this year. So yes, we are going exponential. The debt orgy has already hit our credit rating, with Fitch cutting its rate on federal debt last August and Moody's cutting it in November. Meanwhile, despite repeated battles over the debt ceiling, which could end the deficits in a single blow, the Uniparty keeps chugging along, racking up the trillions in your name, well, in your grandchildren's name, for everything from diversity, climate, crises, and wars in places you never heard of and probably never wanted to. So why does this matter beyond the fading prospects that any of it will be repaid? Because the last time we had a financial crisis coinciding with a recession, so the 2008 crisis, the national debt was three times smaller, and the government was paying just over $1 billion per day in interest. Today, in stark contrast, Washington is spending $3 billion a day on debt interest, so adding another trillion per year to the deficit. The Peterson Foundation recently calculated that in the next decade, we will spend nearly $11 trillion in interest alone. Of course, that's not even counting what new debt Washington's drunkest spenders incur for their climate, diversity, and fresh wars. So what's next? We are rapidly approaching a debt spiral, a point of no return. Keep in mind, all of this doesn't even begin to scrape the surface of things Washington has promised and will not deliver. So unfunded benefits, which is mainly Social Security, Medicare, and gold-plated government pensions, come to at least $100 trillion on top of the 34. So that would come to more than $1 million per household in America, $1 million that Washington has promised that you will pay. For perspective, that is roughly five times the median household net worth in America. So in other words, Washington has promised everything you own five times over, and they're in the process of gunning for number six. So how does this end? Well, historically, there's three ways out of a debt spiral. Massive austerity, what Argentina is currently going through right now. Number two is hard default, so stiffing Wall Street, or the last man standing, inflation. Given the vote-repelling power of austerity, and given Wall Street's gold-plated Rolodexes, you can guess which one they will choose. week, Washington hatched yet another job report that looks fantastic on the outside and is pretty nasty under the hood. According to the Labor Department, employers added 216,000 jobs in December, outpacing forecasts the New York Times reported with glee and leaving the unemployment rate unchanged at a respectable 3.7%. 
The Associated Press could barely hold on to their adjectives, telling readers it was a robust number reflecting continued economic strength in a healthy economy. Indeed, that it was, quote, evidence that the Fed may be able to achieve a notoriously difficult soft landing. That would be notorious as in the Fed has never pulled it off in 110 years and literally dozens of attempts. Alas, if you've been paying attention, you won't be surprised that under the hood, it was a brutal report. My friend EJ Antoni went through the numbers. For starters, the economy actually lost 1.5 million full-time jobs in a single month, replaced by part-time gigs, so second jobs and DoorDash, which have now hit nearly 9 million gigs that are counted as jobs. Next, the Department of Labor quietly revised down almost every single job report in 2023 slashing it all 430,000 imaginary jobs, that's 40,000 per month. In other words, those jobs never existed. They were figments of the imagination of well-paid government statisticians. Now, getting 10 out of 11 wrong, all in the same direction, is pretty impressive. After all, true mistakes should break about 50-50. Of course, it's different when you are paid to make mistakes and have the so-called birth-death statistical model to black box your way to whatever number the narrative requires. Incidentally, those imaginary jobs were all private sector, so government jobs actually grew more than reported, and they now stand at 23 million parasites, or government workers, as burdens on the rest of the economy. Now, keep in mind, every one of those government jobs is paid for by multiple real jobs. In fact, last month, that ratio was just three private sector jobs holding up every government job. So you can look at it as you have to hand a government worker a third of your salary to cover his bills on top of the rest of what government spends on wars, climate, vote buying, and so on. Now, in case you wondered how they blow through so many trillions so fast, there you go. The final mystery is if all those jobs are fake, why is official unemployment still so low? And that's easy because 700,000 Americans dropped out of the labor force in a single month adding to the millions who have dropped out since COVID. Where did they all go? Some gave up altogether, so-called discouraged workers. Others went on government benefits, likely for life. Neither are counted as unemployed. They may as well be retired and sprawled on a sofa on a San Francisco corner. Tallying up those missing workers, we would have about not 6 million unemployed at 3.7%. In reality, it would be closer to 11 to 13 million unemployed with a jobless rate closer to 7%. So what's next? In recent videos, I've characterized our job market as government jobs, DoorDash, and motivated government statisticians. This report keeps it up. The media does everything to hide it, but going by polling, Americans are choosing to believe their eyes. Now the question is, will they vote what they see? A word from our sponsor. An IRA is an investment vehicle that can save you a lot of taxes if used correctly. With Unchained.com, you can hold real Bitcoin in your IRA, and it's the only company where you hold the keys and can verify that your Bitcoin is not being relent or rehypothecated. We've recently seen that futures-based ETFs dramatically underperform holding your own Bitcoin, so why settle for an underperforming asset? Go to Unchained.com and use promo code PETER to get $50 off concierge onboarding. 
Massive layoffs are coming. This from Newsweek, who just reported that nearly four in 10 American companies, so almost half, say that they are preparing to lay off workers in the coming year. Of those, one in five companies say they will lay off a third or more of their workers. Meanwhile, more than half of companies say they plan to implement a hiring freeze in the coming year. The data comes from a survey of more than 900 companies. And when asked why, most of those companies said they see a recession coming. They want to be prepared by getting rid of expensive workers ahead of time so that they can survive. Interestingly, almost 40% of those companies said they'll be laying off workers and replacing them with AI, which is probably capturing broader automation. After all, chatbots and French fry robots do not fight for 15, they do not strike, and they won't sue you for misgendering them. So this all comes after a brutal 2023 for layoffs. Outplacement firm Challenger Gray reported that layoffs last year more than doubled the previous year, hitting 720,000. That was the worst number since COVID. And these are not just small businesses. So I've mentioned in recent videos how corporate layoffs have been soaring all year. The biggest sector has been tech. So Google recently announced they're laying off 30,000 workers. Xerox is axing 15% of their workforce. Amazon dropped 27,000. Facebook, 21. Microsoft and Salesforce.com ditched 10,000 workers each. Twitter famously fired 80% of its workers and got a lot better. In fact, the tech sector shed over 168,000 jobs last year, which actually matches the 2001 dot-com crash. The previous year, 2022, had been almost as bad for tech, so now it's looking like three years in a row of dot-com crash level layoffs in big tech. In case you are wondering why that former Java developer is now making your latte. After tech, the most at-risk industries for layoffs were construction, finance and insurance, and retail. So construction is easy, high borrowing costs demolish new builds, and the Fed has been on a high rate rampage to cover up its previous mistakes. Beyond that though, fully 38% of financial companies and 44% of retail are planning layoffs. Now finance is also a Fed story, given that low rates are a make-work program for Wall Street, and the Fed is currently AWOL trying to clean up its previous messes. But then comes retail, which is taking it on the chin, partly from e-commerce, partly from relaxed attitudes towards shoplifting or inventory shrinkage in the industry lingo, as Blue City DAs cater to their voter base of criminals on welfare. So what's next? I've mentioned in recent videos how our economy is rapidly morphing into government jobs and DoorDash. Given the government doesn't actually lay people off, no, they just raise your taxes. Hundreds of thousands of real layoffs will accelerate that transition. Companies had been holding back so far, perhaps hoarding workers after the COVID-era labor shortages that had CEOs manning the shipping docks. That was one of the factors keeping unemployment contained, but even now that free lunch appears to be fading, leaving thousands of companies poised to cut their workers and roll in the chat bots and the droids. A few days ago, the United Nations released a 167-page paper regally titled World Economic Situation and Prospects that amounted to a list of what we owe for the imaginary climate crisis. 
So, how much do we owe? I hope you are sitting down. $150 trillion. That's with a T. In fact, if you actually sit down and count the zeros, it is just shy of a bazillion. So, $150 trillion comes to roughly half the accumulated wealth of humanity since we learned to walk upright. All that for the United Nations climate fairies. Note that on present form, it will be two bazillion in a couple years. So, indeed, even in this UN report, they confess that $150 trillion is only a spitball estimate. Who really knows how angry the climate fairies can get? So, how does the UN get to $150 trillion? I mean, aside from the obvious answer that they pull it out of their bright blue hats, the bulk of it comes from massive subsidies for green energy to, quote, transform the global energy sector, which, by the way, was doing just fine before. So that comes to about $5.3 trillion per year, which is greater than the GDP of Japan. And they want that for 50 years. Now, if you actually tally that up, it's $265 trillion, not a buck fifty. But who is really counting at this point? Next up is fresh trillions to bribe poor countries into the energy transition, along with a, quote, loss and damage fund that will send trillions over 50 years to poor countries to compensate their corrupt elites for imaginary global warming. Finally, the report pushes a rerouting of existing development money to climate, so essentially starving things like highways or railroads in Africa that could bring farm products to cities, and instead waste it on giant solar concentrators that rust in the jungle. Now, those bazillions would all be good fun if they weren't actually being converted into policy. Alas, they are. I mentioned back in August a summit in Paris where Janet Yellen and assorted Euro minions committed to pushing four trillions per year for all of the above, including bribing the third world elites. The irony, of course, is that voters do not want any of this. Poll after poll shows they are not willing to spend more than about 10 bucks for the entirety of the climate agenda, but they are naturally outbid by the diamond-plated Rolodexes of the climate lobby. So what's next? Like all cancers, the trillion-dollar climate cancer has one overarching goal, to feed, to absorb fresh trillions and plow them into buying yet more friends and influencing yet more laws. The easy solution is cut them off, end the taxpayer siphon, and let climate products compete for customers like every other non-corrupt industry is supposed to. Of course, that will not happen because the climate lobby has some very deep hooks in the global corporatist uniparty, and they will fight tooth and nail, even using our own tax money and police against us to keep it growing. This podcast is supported by our sponsor, MoneyMetals.com, the most trusted bullion dealer and depository in the United States. MoneyMetals is known for its competitive pricing, excellent customer service, and fast delivery of physical gold and silver as well as their educational content and advocacy for sound money policies at the state and federal levels. They've set the industry standard for selling, buying, and storing precious metals. If you're looking to help protect yourself against inflation and market turmoil, you'll give them a try. To learn more or to buy your physical gold and silver, go to moneymetals.com. What is the climate endgame? Yesterday, I mentioned a new UN report demanding $150 trillion, that's with a T, to combat the imaginary climate crisis. 
In that video, I ventured that climate has been one of the most successful taxpayer fleecings in American history, rivaling the military-industrial complex and second only to central banking. Frittered away on green billionaires and their army of useful idiots who glue themselves to highways. Alas, it is not just the $150 trillion. There's always been a more sinister angle to the environmental movement. Indeed, 50 years ago, Czech physicist Peter Beckman coined the term watermelon to describe the movement. So green on the outside, deep Marxist red on the inside. We can see the political agenda and how media treats environmental issues. So anything the left dislikes has a sin-soaked carbon footprint that must be eliminated to purify the planet. But anything the left likes gets a pass. For example, the past few years, we've seen mainstream media attacking the carbon footprints of barbecues, air conditioning, recreational shooting, or even camping, college football, and especially tailgating at college football, which college Marxists do not do. Meanwhile, burning dozens of cities for racialized Marxism or sending hundreds of private jets flying cross-Atlantic to environmental conferences apparently have no carbon footprint at all. It is magic. Alas, joke or no, they are now taking this to the next level. In Europe, they are floating digital identities that could be used to impose a carbon allowance, beyond which you would have to buy credits. So the riffraff stays in their pods, the rich still get to park their yachts off Monte Carlo. Commentator Eva Vladingerbrook labeled this correctly as neo-feudalism. Alas, it is one thing to keep the poor in their place, but the next step is slashing humanity's standard of living altogether. After all, we are all sinners in the eyes of St. Greta. So how much? Well, major UK consultancy Future Laboratories issued a report recently calling for carbon allowances of just 2.3 tons per year, which is the carbon emission of a single round-trip cross-Atlantic flight. So you could either take that flight or you could eat for the year. Now, that would do wonders for keeping the riffraff out, unless you've got the dosh or the ideological blessing to buy your indulgences. 2.3 tons is interesting because it's roughly seven times less than the average American, and five times less than the average European uses. They are poorer because their politicians are stupid. So what would seven times less carbon look like? Well, carbon footprints line up almost perfectly with GDP, so it's pretty easy. We'd be seven times poorer. In other words, a standard of living somewhere between Cuba and Botswana. Of course, at that point, we pray that they do not further alter the deal and take us all the way to climate paradises like Somalia or Papua New Guinea. So what's next? The good news is the watermelons are overplaying their cards. $150 trillion to buy our way to Botswana is not a winning platform. Alas, the bad news is our left-wing media is brainwashed so deep they will do everything they can to hide the trap until we are deep inside. Starting this week, we will be switching to a weekday schedule on the video, so five days a week, Monday through Friday. It's mainly so I have more time to make longer-form videos and content, maybe even a book if the stars align this year. And also because my wife's bugging me to hit the gym after a glutinous holiday of sugary decadence. At one point, we were literally swimming in pumpkin pie. At any rate, new videos are going to be coming out every weekday. The podcast is still going out every Monday and new articles on the Substack every single Friday. 
Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode fresh in your inbox. And go to petersaydonch.com to read the full weekly articles with charts and all the gory details. Okay, we'll be watching. See you next time.